Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Green Pole podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend, Max Cohen, joining me from Denver, Colorado. Um, and here to talk, Max, just about all things Full America. I mean, it's an amazing season for Fulham so far. We're in the sort of interregnum between Christmas and New Year, where no one knows what day it is. We're all so we've all eaten too much food. Well, you you may not have done, but I certainly have. And we're certainly gorging on the feast of magnificent Fulham football. There's only one place to start, and that is with Tim Ream, because I, I I'll be honest with you, I don't know what's happened because he scored a goal against Crystal Palace that you know defies logic, and his whole arc of um, continuous improvement it, it is just it is wonderful to see um, but but it also defies explanation can you help well, I, mean, I mean where are well, what, what's going on and how can Tim Ream do that and if he can do that swivel and hit a half volley at Sellers Park like that why hasn't he done it before <laughs> well it's, it's great to be on the show Dan um, and Tim Ream He's just like a fine wine that's aging as he gets older. And that's the only explanation I can come up with because we were sat here three seasons ago. And I remember the Villa match pretty clearly when we got thrashed 3-0 at home. And it was very much the championship center backs who were playing in that back three. And and Reem was, was chief among them. And, and there was so much vitriol directed at him, given what else had happened. I remember, you know, Cardiff away. I think that was the 2018-19 season. And Tim Ream had an unfortunate slip at the halfway line, gave away the ball, and they scored. And people written him off. And I'll be honest, I'll raise my hand up and say, I did as well. I said, at the start of this season, if Ream's playing, you know, majority of the matches, we're going to be in trouble. And we're all so desperately wrong, and I'm so glad for it, because we're seeing, I think, one of the best defensive performances over a season I can remember. I mean, it's up there with Hangland, I really would argue. Hanglin and Hughes. I mean, that's the type of performances Ream is putting in week in, week out. It's catapulted him, you know, into the U.S. national team for the World Cup. I mean, he's won plaudits from people who, just like myself, has written him off years ago. And the goal was just a cherry on top. One thing I can say is I think Marcus Silva's played a massive role. I think having a top-class manager does that to players, and it gives confidence to them. And Ream's a leader in the dressing room, and he'd spoken in the past about how, you know, when we got promoted, players who were stalwarts in the championship, immediately pushed to the bench. And he'd spoken about how that had broken up the team desire, the team togetherness under Parker, I think he was talking about most pointedly. And I think it's so much about Silva as well. But we have to just appreciate Reem because he signed a contract extension. We're going to see at least another year of him. Hopefully it's more because this form is just sensational. But I mean, there's, there's, there's something else as well, which is that he... He exudes a certain – there's a calmness about Tim Ream. And I've been, I've been fortunate enough to be in his presence. He's a very erudite guy. He thinks very deeply about the game, the world, life, and what he's about to say to you. But it's like when Tim Ream is around, everything is okay. And I I, I don't want to go to make, make this too philosophical – but you 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 mess you you mentioned you wrestled with the with the point that we've all wrestled with, which is a lot of people felt that if Tim Ream 
featured regularly in the Premier League, that Fulham would be in trouble. Well, I mean, Tim Ream has not missed a Premier League minute. And at the World Cup, he didn't miss a international minute for the United States. And both of those teams, I would argue, exceeded expectations. Um, and he has the potential, you know, I would even say he's got, got, gone beyond Hangland and Hughes because the, the big factor is the guy's 35 years of age. And you're not meant to be able to do these sort of things, particularly with the pace of the Premier League. Um, so let's just let's just have a look in the pantheon of like Fulham American legends to broaden it out a little bit. Where does Tim Ream sit? And I know this is a terrible question to ask. It's a you terrible could. question, Dan. It's like it's like you're asking me to choose between children or, or something like that. You know, you can't you can't give an answer. <laughs> um, I mean, if if you look at it. I think Dempsey McBride are right up at the top, and I don't see that. Well, in that reason. order. Yeah, well, I'm I'm going to go for a bit of a wishy-washy answer, maybe diplomatic. I'd say the top three. You know, we can rank them by, you know, the upper echelon. And I think Reem McBride and Dempsey all sit on that. I have to say Dempsey for me, just because of my personal story and my my experience following film. Dempsey has to be number one, even though how it ended. You know, that's it's tough because. We can talk about that much later, but, you know, the Dempsey story isn't as cut and dry as, you know, we'd like it to believe, you know, as he left and then came back for that. Yeah, but I love the guy, man. I I, I love the guy because he just never gave up. Exactly. That's that's true of all of these American players. That's the big big characteristic of all of these American players that you've got. Like, each of them had to fight for their place just to play in any any team, never mind Fulham. And they all had to prove several managers wrong. And I just love that. And Reem gave an interview to NBC, I think, before the World Cup. And it basically just boiled down to don't give up. You know, you keep going and you will get your opportunity. And I'm talking it's, right, it's incredible. Yeah, I'm I mean, and right just a final across. point on that about Reem is that it, it's a humbling moment, I think, for a lot of supporters, myself included, because, you know, as football supporters, we like to think everything's very cut and dry, very black and white. This player is not very good. This player is on great form. And how Reem has shocked all our expectations and exceeded them to the point where you mentioned he hasn't missed a minute all season long and we're having the best Premier League season, you know, you could argue in our past decade. It shows just how finicky football can be and how our impressions of supporters are not are not always spot on and how we really need to take a step back and think, you know, we're making this judgment about a player. Is that really so? Because he's, he's done the impossible in many ways. But back yeah. to your question, I think Dempsey – the 2011-12 season, when I think he was the third highest goal scorer in the entire Premier League as a midfielder, yeah, that's that sensation. I think that to me is was just a season which will not be rivaled by an American player. So he has to be up there at the top. But again, what Reeves is doing this year, you know, there's still what 22 matches left to go in the season. <laughs> Why couldn't he rival that? Um, well, if he ends up scoring more goals than Clint Dempsey, I <laughs> think he's done very well. But I take well, I know what you were trying to say. Um, and, and there's a conspicuous lack of Brian McBride in your in your answer, and I'm just you know, I, I just I will bow down to nobody in my love for, for Brian McBride. So I'm just putting that out there. What a man! Um, bring it back to what you what you touched on just just previously. You know, there's that famous saying, isn't there? Uh, Form is temporary, class is permanent, 
right? And the thing about Tim Ream in this, the discussion that we've just had about how he's proved people wrong, it's not the first time that Tim Ream has had to do this. We're, we're talking actually on the seventh anniversary of Slavisa Jakanovic's appointment um, as Fulham head coach. And gosh, where is all that? I remember that. Where has all yeah. that time gone? I, I feel <laughs> old. Um, but the point about this is Fulham were all set to release Tim Ream in 2015, 2016, at the tail end of that season. He had to go and sit down with Slavisa Jakanovic and say, what do you want me to do? How can I get back in your... It, 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 you know, how can I justify being allowed to stay here? And he took on board the lessons from the manager because it was a huge change in style from um, Simons to, to Jukanovic. And Jukanovic was sceptical about Tim Ream being a guy who could pass the ball out from the back and fit his profile for a centre-back. You know, he released Dan Byrne. And there's a redemption story for you. <laughs> wow. We, yeah. We, we won't, we won't um, go down that particular uh, uh, avenue uh, uh, at this point. But Ream has had to prove people wrong before. And he's also had to sit there whilst he's been frozen out of the team by the previous manager. And I do think what you, you mentioned, the point about Marco Silva, it's not just Tim Ream. He's given a lot of players a lot of confidence. We just flip to that Crystal Palace fixture. Most of those players, I mean, obviously there are people who we who we brought in, but at various points in their Fulham careers, the ones who've been around for a while, they've all been derided. You know, I mean, it wasn't so long ago people saw Issa Diop play at Crawley and were like, he's a pub player. <laughs> you know, um, Kenny Tete could never be fit. I mean, Let's talk about Anthony Robinson. I'd, I'd like to talk about Anthony Robinson because he's quietly, or maybe not so quietly where you are, having a storming season as well, isn't he? 100%. And you know, I was remarking when I was watching the match yesterday, how often can you say that the centre-back, left-sided centre-back and the left-back for your club team plays for the country as well? I mean, th- that partnership cannot be overstated how vital that is and Robinson for someone who yeah was derided for, for a lot of his film career for you know can't cross the ball can't defend his positioning is poor he's becoming a consistent defender and he always had that jolt of pace and he always had that you know way of just kind of moving his body fainting to beat a defender and to surge into the attacking half but what we're seeing is kind of maturity right before our eyes it's a miracle we signed him for what under two million pounds I think it was two million pounds bang on yeah, two million yeah. pounds. Yeah. <laughs> what a steal. He's being linked, I think, with every club at the top of Serie A. And from my perspective here in the US, I mean, he's he's really a hot commodity. Hopefully, we can hang on to him in January. I don't see why we wouldn't. But what what a great story, Anthony Robbins, is, is, as well, because you're right, a written off player. You know, at Everton Youth Academy could never make it there, had to drop down to Wigan. They get relegated, we pick him up. And he did endure some tough times in the Premier League in the first spell. But as you're saying about Silva, patience with players. Give them time. And I think we're seeing it pay off with Robinson, who could be one of the first names on the team sheet now. Well, he has to be. I mean, he's virtually the only fit left back we've got. And he's not, <laughs> he's not, uh, he's not fully fit, it seems, having um, really exerted himself in the World Cup. And I thought he was fantastic. Just on your point, I had, there hasn't been a right winger who's got the better of him this season that I can 
that I can remember, you know, and you were saying he's maligned for some of his defensive decision-making and positioning. And he's somebody who strides um, confidently out there now and knows about the game plan, knows what he's um, going to do. And he has a very high ceiling probably as a, as a, as a footballer. Um, so, I mean, and it seems there must be an interesting discussion in the United States because his pathway to playing for America very different to other people. You know, the amount of people who messaged me as soon as they heard him speak were like, "Oh, that's not how an American <laughs> speaks." You know, Milton Keynes, born and bred, but listen, yeah. American father, and and that's that's one of the big I think benefits of of the American team is that we have aggressively pursued players who have American parentage. Um, who even have you know Serginho Dest. Is, is another player who lived in Holland all his life, but one of his parents is American. And we, we welcome them into the team, and it, and we're all the better for it. Well, it's the American story, isn't it? Yeah. You know, uh, in not not to venture into into uh, topics that you and I could discuss for hours, but um, <laughs> that, that that's one of the the great things about about the United States. God bless America. You welcome everybody, and uh, you know you can make your way, um, and. I, I just find this so interesting because I, I find it astonishing about how many people tune in regularly, read articles regularly, correspond with me regularly. You know, I had messages from um, from a gentleman who was following the game uh, yesterday from the Twin Cities. Um, and I was like, blimey, you know, I mean, he was he was messaging me intently over um, social media, giving him, giving me feedback on what he thought about the positioning of the players and what he thought about the two red cards for for Crystal Palace, and I was just, I'm just blown away because people have to get up very early in the United in various parts of the United States to watch these matches. I mean, th- there's a, there's real dedication that, that goes into following Fulham from afar. Um, can you just talk about the American experience? You know, I mean, we're still a small side in in terms of coverage uh, out in the United States, but not as small as we might be in the UK, given Fulham's predilection for picking up American players. Is that fair? Yeah, I think one thing I do want to speak about is that being an American Fulham fan can quite often be isolating because when you're in America the vast majority of supporters. First of all, most people might not even like football or even have an English football team. And if they do, they're more often than not likely to follow United, City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal, Spurs, you know, the the, the quote-unquote big clubs. So Fulham fans are few and far between. But the community we have, I think, is second to none because of that bond with the Fulham America players, you know, stretching all the way back to, you know, Casey Keller, Brian McBride, Bocanegra, and oh, Marcus, Han- Marcus Hanneman, Eddie Hanneman, Lewis. Of course. We can go back a little bit further. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, you can go back. Yeah. Certainly. Well, I can I go can. back a bit further. You have yeah, an encyclopedic yeah, yeah, memory, sure. Dan. I knew you were um, going to get that in there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, it's, it, it, it is difficult. And I don't, I think oftentimes, not oftentimes, it's sometimes on social media when it can get a bit nasty. People say, you know, people talk about American fans. They say, oh, all they do is get up and, and watch on the telly. You know, that's fair. You know, they're not falling home and away. But there is something to be said about, you know, waking up at an ungodly hour of the morning and and watching the team you love from across the ocean, but having that dedication to do that and, and keeping in touch 
with the other Fulham supporters, whether it's in England or across America or even across the world via social media. And that's why I think, you know, Twitter has been such a great thing for the Fulham community, Hammy End as well, these kind of message boards, these websites, because we're hungry for news. We, we don't get, you know, the, the papers each morning or Sky Sports 24-7 talking about football. We have to really search it out and find the community. And the people who put in that effort love Fulham. And that's just a quick plug for Cottage Talk. I mean, Russ Goldman is a great example of that. Someone who started this, you know, podcasting empire to connect Fulham fans all across the world with a special place for American fans too. And, you know, it, it is difficult because I think a lot of, you know, English fans with, with the classic kickoff is 3 p.m. You know, you have a whole day ahead of you. Uh, and then and then the football's on. And for us, you know, you wake up and you might not even be fully awake <laughs> and the match is on. And you're Put them a 1-0 down, yeah. Yeah, 1-0 <laughs> down. I mean, but let's see, what was, I think the, the, the one which really stuck out to me recently, which isn't, like, let's say, a great match, but I think it was, it was Everton at home and it was the last time we were in the Premier League and it was a noon kickoff, I believe, in in London and we were already one nil down and it was 7 a.m. where I was. It was in five minutes and it's seven in the morning. You, know, you get not much sleep <laughs> and we're already down. But you know, that, that's what supporting is all about. Um, it's, it's putting the dedication. And I think I have quite a unique experience because I've experienced the American side, but also I live in London from 2010 to 2013 and experienced you know, the, the day in, day out, home and away side of support. And not, nothing beats going to a match in person, but I do have respect, I think, for both both sets of, of fans, the, the locals and the international fans. But hang on a minute. If you left London in 2013, when we sort of tiptoed out of the Premier League, it's all your fault. Man. I know. It was, Dan, you can't imagine the guilt I felt um, <laughs> as a bad luck charm. The year I leave, we get relegated. And then the descent follows with Magat, and we're almost going to get relegated from the championship. And it seemed like it was all my fault. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I, I don't see who else we could blame, frankly. I mean, it was going so well while you were living in London. I mean, <laughs> why didn't you just tell me that, like, we needed to stage an intervention or something? Honestly. Well, well the funny thing was, Dan, it also coincided with uh, the Khan takeover. It did, yeah. You'd have thought he could have paid for an apartment <laughs> for you. I mean, what's going on here? Yeah, good good banter, good banter there. But, yeah, I mean, it was... um. It was it was a joy a joy to, to follow Fulham home and away, and I think my time coincided with the Dempsey time. I think that's why I look on him so fondly, is because during a time when you know I was in London, you know in you know year six to year eight, not many you know American role models in the Premier League, and there's Dempsey playing for the club I love, and not just playing but excelling, one of the best players in the league, consistently, um, and that was just an amazing, you know coincidence that when I was there we had an American player who was playing the star role yeah and really I mean let's talk about Clint because you're gonna have to I mean Clint's story coming from from Texas and uh you know really having to forge his own identity and being a character who had diverse interests and had a lot to say for himself um and fighting his way into the national team and then having to fight his way, having got a transfer from, from the MLS to, to, to Fulham, having to prove himself to successive Fulham managers. I mean, the Fulham players of, of that era tell the story of him reacting very despondently to being left out of the team in the Europa League run. Um, and then, of course, he produces that chip against Juventus that, that you know, I could watch it on a loop. I close my eyes now. 
and I can see it dropping in because I was, it's right in my uh, eye line from where I was uh, sitting or standing at uh, the back of the Hampstead end. You knew it was in, and uh, you know that night will just well, you you could be sustained, but your Fulham experience could be sustained by that night for another twenty, thirty years for the rest of your life, really. Um, but Dempsey was an interesting one because like nobody could really work out where his best position was at the beginning. And yet he still got himself into positions to score lots of goals. And, you know, if I could have my time again and I could sit down with Martin Yole and say, look, Martin, stop buying all these attacking midfielders, Tarrat, Ruiz, you know, and Petric and Berbatov and all this sort of stuff. You've got Dempsey, right? Build the rest of the team around someone who's just scored 25 goals in the Premier League in one season, pretty much. Um and yeah, Martin seemed to want to. Um, Martin Yol seemed to want to squeeze as many attacking luxury players into a team <laughs> as possible, and then seemed surprised that that didn't work. Um, but yeah, Dempsey, really interesting guy, and and you know that grit and determination made him popular with supporters wherever he went because they recognised a little bit of themselves in, in Clint Dempsey. Is that is that fair, or am I way off base? No, I think that's totally on base with the determination and the grit. You know, came from a trailer park in the middle of nowhere in Texas and made it all the way to the top flights of English football. And that's just dedication. The match that stands out to me personally was um, West Ham away. It was fall 2010, the Mark Hughes era. And I was actually lucky enough, I was selected as the away mascot for that match because we were season ticket holders. And I think what the club did was look at the youth tickets bought um, in the way end and, and, and who selected me for a mascot and just reached out to my family and said, hey, we see you have a youth ticket. Do you want to be the mascot? I'm like, oh my God, it was amazing. And I was in the, the dressing room before the match and I was actually talking to Eddie Johnson and he found out I was American because he heard me speak and he said, hey, Clint, get over here. There's another, there's another yank in, in, in the dressing room. And Dempsey came over and he signed my shirt and then I started the entire uh, Fulham side signed my shirt. So when I walk out onto the Upton Park pitch, I had signatures all over the Fulham kit, which is, which is amazing. But in that match, I, I'm sure you remember, Dempsey got a massive elbow above the eye. Huge shiner. Mm. Um, it's, and the pictures are crazy because it's just totally swollen up. He, lo- he looks ridiculous. And he goes on to score the goal in the match. It's a 1-1 draw. We didn't win. But that's the best part of Dempsey. He'll take a massive hit. He'll get right back up. And he'll put the ball in the back of the net. Uh, of course, the hatchet against Newcastle United in that 5-2 win. Another highlight, you know, the enduring image I have is him leaning forward with this thigh in the most unorthodox of scoring positions. But that summed up Dempsey. He'd do whatever it takes to get the ball in the net. And and it was a shame, Dan, because we had to talk about his departure to Spurs and how that left a bad taste in the mouth of Fulham fans. Um, but really, Dempsey summed up, I think, the best of what Fulham America could be. Yeah, and also the the one the characteristics that you describe for Clint Dempsey can be applied to Brian McBride. I mean, this is a guy who had blood clots and aneurysms, and you know, literally, if he went through an airport scanner, they think there was some sort of terrorist attack going on or something because everything went beep beep beep. And uh, I mean, I've never seen I've I've never met a man more humble than than Brian McBride, given what he's achieved in. Um, professional sport in for 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 charity uh, and in all sorts of other spheres of his life. Um, 
uh, I was fortunate enough to to meet him after he'd retired and have a chance to um, to have a chat with both him and uh, Dana, his wife, uh, before a, a Fulham game many years ago now. Um, and uh, Ryan McBride is just an incredible guy. And he was somebody who was incredibly underrated as a, as a footballer. But everywhere he went, he went to, went to Germany and played and, and did quite well. He came to England and played at Preston and played at Everton. They had him on loan at both clubs and they didn't take him. I think Everton went for Joe Max Moore at that point instead of Brian McBride or perhaps the other way around in that period. So we ended up taking Brian McBride. And the first thing Chris Coleman said, oh, Brian McBride is not a replacement for Louis Sahar. And nobody could be because Louis Sahar had scored nearly 20 goals, 20 Premier League goals by January, something ridiculous. And uh, But Brian McBride's first, virtually his first touch in a Fulham shirt was to score past Casey Keller, the winner on his debut, five minutes after coming on as a substitute to beat Tottenham they were then going really well in the Premier League. And McBride was not blessed with any pace. Well, that's, that's unfair. I mean, he could beat me in a sprint, I'm sure, still <laughs> still now. Um, but he was just a warrior. And the thing I always remember is getting into a huge argument with a flatmate of mine at university who was Italian during the 2006 World Cup. You know what I'm going to say now. <laughs> because Daniel De Rossi elbowed Brian McBride in the face and the blood went everywhere. And Brian had to go off and come back. And, of course, he came back and played on. Um, and uh, that that was just Brian McBride. But his whole career, he didn't have the scoring numbers of a Dempsey because he was often playing for Fulham as a lone striker in a 4-5-1. But the things he did and the goals he scored, I mean, just extraordinary. And the fact that he finished his Fulham career, you know, having dislocated his kneecap in the act of scoring a goal against Middlesbrough, being out for six, seven months, they rushed him back to play a pivotal part in the great escape. And didn't he just do that? And he signed off as the captain of the team that somehow avoided relegation. Um, and he went back home to finish his career in America. And now he's the general manager, I think, of the, um, of the United States men's national team. Um, and so he has quite a pivotal role to play in, in, the, in the progress of the, the men's national team. I think Carlos Bocanegra, who we haven't really spoken about, he's got eight Premier League goals. Uh, for Fulham, uh, is the technical director at Atlanta United, um, I believe, in the MLS. And so all of that, and Clint is a very successful TV pundit. Perhaps we'll talk just briefly about that. So all of these people are still involved in the game and they're still passionate. And if you're lucky enough to be looking on Twitter or social media during a Fulham match, there's every chance that they might post something about Fulham. Um, so it's still very cool to their identities as, as Americans. Um, and again, that adds to what you were talking about earlier, the sense of community and pride. And I do feel proud that Fulham took a chance on um, American players and it really paid dividends because, you know, Casey Keller was important in that great escape season. I mean, the, the, yeah, the contributions of American players 
uh, are extraordinary in Fulham's recent history, I think. Yeah, I think it's, it's just because Fulham is such a great club. You know, Fulham is a family club. It's a club where the supporters are loyal, but fair. And the minute I think any American sets forth at Craven Cottage, you fall in love with it because it has what so much of modern American sports lacks. It has the cottage. It has the wooden seats. It's not huge. It's not hulking. It's intimate. Every seat in the house is, is a great seat unless you're behind one of the poles. <laughs> but that's part of the charm, right? And the, the people involved in Fulham might just be the best part. The supporters are second to none. And I think American fans love that, you know, and, and American players love that in the sense where the U.S. supporter culture, there's no chanting, there's big screens, pumped in music. I mean, just look at the Jaguars, you know, that Shahid Khan owns, and you couldn't find a more distinct match day experience from Creative Cottage versus that uh, NFL stadium. And people just fall in love with it, the charm of the club. And the history, right? I mean, 1879, most you know modern American franchises weren't around back then, unless you're talking about baseball. So Fulham has, I think, a perfect blend of aspects that appeal to American sports fans and American players too. I mean, it's just fantastic to hear you speak with such such passion about it. And as you say, having gone from, uh, having experienced both sides, you know, three or four years of going home and away, uh, in in the United Kingdom, and we'll get you back to to London to see some more football, I'm sure. Um, and now following it from from afar as you continue your own um, career. Uh, two questions to finish. Then, um, if Fulham could do something, if the club could do something more for the American fan base, what would you be looking for? What what would you want as a as an American fan? Is is there something that could give you a greater sense of connection? Because you're so far away. You can't have the same Fulham experience as people like me who are lucky enough to be able to go every week. It's a great question. And it's something actually people ask me a lot. <clears throat> and it's a proposition I'm going to say is not original, but something people have said to me is a summer tour. It doesn't have to be big. I know Fulham came uh, to Jacksonville 2013 or 2014, you know, seven or eight years ago to play one match. But come to America to play a match during the summer. Mm. It's something which I think would pay dividends in terms of the younger support. You know, younger Americans are by far the most football crazed of any generation in the U.S. It's only getting more popular among kids. And just I think playing one match and, you know, I'm going to plug D.C. because where I live, but D.C., New York could be anywhere. It could be Denver, the Midwest could just create a bond with Fulham and this young generation and the existing generation like myself and other Fulham America fans um, and, and give a great connection for fans who maybe can't make the trip across the pond. I think that would be a great thing. And listen, if we want to have the intent to be a big club, which I think we have all the right to be, you know, big clubs have these international tours and we don't have to go and we don't have to go crazy like United or Arsenal does, but play one or two matches in America next summer. It's it's not the crazy idea in the world. We're eighth in the league right now. We're above Chelsea. You know, Chelsea's a huge international tour. Why not us? <laughs> yeah, why not? And we are above Chelsea. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to stay that way. I'm feeling very good about our comparative strengths and weaknesses at the moment. Um, and, and then to finish, uh, then it's you've segued brilliantly into my last question, even though you didn't know it was coming. Uh, what do you think for the remainder of the season? Sky's the limit, surely, for uh, for Fulham at the moment. Should I be dusting off my passport, getting ready to um, career around Europe, following Fulham again? I mean, can, can we dream? I mean. I don't see why not. And listen, we're eighth in the league now. We've played 16 matches. Yes, you know, some teams around us have played 
fewer and they might catch up, but whatever. It is without a doubt the most positive start to a league season we've had, again, I, I'd say in a decade, honestly. And I, I don't see any weaknesses currently in this team. I mean, that's that's not fair. I, I don't see any glaring weaknesses. I don't see a situation in which a pundit could say, look, Fulham are being lucky and they're going to revert to the mean in the second half of the season and finish, you know, 15th or 16th. I just don't see that. I mean, the way we're playing, the confidence, and I'm sure you and Frankie discussed this in, in the match review, the way we started the first 10 minutes against Palace on the front foot, pushing an established Premier League team, we'd won three on the bounce at home, totally on the back foot. That is the intent which Marcus Silva prides, and the players are buying into it. So I'm not going to make a prediction of European football just yet, but I think there's no reason we can't stay in that 10 to 8 region. That's what I'm predicting for the end of the season, and that would be an unqualified success. Oh, that'd be huge. That'd be, you know, that'd be, I'd be tired of all the winning. Um, if I can, <laughs> if I can put put it, leave it like oh, that. Um, oh, no, 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 no. That's all. That's all I'm gonna say. Um, right, Max. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk talk to you about Fulham. We could do it for hours. Um, we can't do it for hours for various reasons today. But we'll have you back on soon. Cheers, Dan. Great to be on. Always love the green pole, and let's hope for a win against Southampton. Let's hope for a win against Southampton. Happy holidays to you. Happy New Year if we don't get to speak before then. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you, everybody, for for listening. You'll continue to support. And I know you very much value Max's contributions. Um, And uh, really interesting to get a little insight into the American supporter experience. We'd like to do that with lots of the international fan groups. So watch this space. And in the meantime, come on, you white.